time for our Bible reading together. So if you've got a Bible there or a device in front of you, turn to Isaiah 53. It's just a short reading this morning. We're going to read Isaiah 53 and verses 3 to 5. So this is what the prophet Isaiah said in regards to the Christ. From verse 3 he said, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Well, good morning and welcome to the service today. As we open uh, God's Word, let's just commit our time to Him. Father, we pray that as we come under the ministry of Your Word, we pray that You will speak to us through Your Word, through Your Spirit. We thank You, Father, and acknowledge what You've done through the sacrifice of your son on that cross and his resurrection from the grave. We pray, Father, that they will be the things that will centre and focus our life. And in those things, we may find peace and rest. We pray, Father, this morning that as we celebrate, that the name of Jesus will be uplifted, that the name of Jesus will be on every tongue. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, this morning is a little bit of a, a, a different way of approaching life, I guess, um, simply because about I don't know, nine or ten months ago, Chris and I hatched this plot um, that he would preach one of the Easter messages and I would preach the other one. And it was based around a message that I had preached um, at our Church at Five service. Uh, and then one of my grandsons decided that they were going to get baptised. And so on Friday, I was at the baptism for my grandson, Isaiah, and, uh, which was fantastic, except for what that meant was, was that uh, Chris on Friday preached the Easter Sunday message, which means that left then the Good Friday message to be preached on Sunday. So we're, we're using a little bit of licence here and kind of turning things around. So, so in essence, you celebrated Jesus' resurrection before he'd been crucified. And now we're going to celebrate his crucifixion after he's been resurrected. So if you can handle that, which I think we can get our heads around, we should be fine. The other challenge is that it means we need to place what we're going to look at this morning into a little bit of context. And so we need to understand where Easter fits in the context of the biblical narrative of, of of the uh, 
the story of God redeeming his people. And so a quick overview, a very quick overview. Old Testament, New Testament. Old Testament, God revealing his plans and purposes uh, towards Jesus coming and actually dying on that cross and then being risen from the grave. And in Genesis 1.27, God is dealing with all of mankind. By the time we get to Genesis 12, chapter 1, uh, chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, we find that there's this promise that's given and it's that uh, I will make you a great and mighty nation and those who bless you I will bless and those who curse you I will curse. And God, of course, is now talking about the nation of Israel. We only go a little bit further in the gospel narrative uh, the good news narrative that is the whole Bible. And we find that in Genesis 49.10, there's a promise then that is given. And uh, the scripture says that the scepter will not leave the hand of Judah. Now, Judah is one of the tribes of Israel. We get to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7, 11 and following. And there's another promise that's given. But this time it is a promise to David. And it says that David's family line will carry the redemptive purposes and plans of God. That I will establish your family and your kingdom forever. It's an eternal promise. And then we arrive at the New Testament and the New Testament begins with a genealogy. And what it does is it traces Jesus' ancestry back through the Old Testament. And so what it does is it starts off with those, those series of promises that are given, those series of, of uh, um, redemptive proclamations that are made. Mankind, and out of all of mankind there is one nation, out of that one nation there is one tribe, out of that one tribe there is one family line, and out of that family line there is to be one person, the person of Jesus. And so when we put all our eggs in one basket, which is what you do when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you're actually placing your faith in the person who was the very focal point and purpose of the entire Old Testament. That if you think about it, it's a bit like an hourglass that's sort of laid on its side. So mankind, nation, tribe, family, Jesus... The cool part is then that the New Testament is about how the gospel then goes out and the, as we work our way through the gospel, what you find is that the, the message of Christ first goes to the Jews and then to the Samaritans, the half-Jew, half-Gentile, and then in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius, the Gentiles. And if you're not a Jew or not a Gentile, well, you don't have two legs and a heartbeat. You're one or the other. And so God's redemptive plan, his purposes. Old Testament starts with mankind, ends with mankind. And Easter is where those things intersect. The purposes, the redemptive purposes of God, God's plan to buy us back from our sin, the focal point of all of that was Jesus Christ on a cross and three days rising from the grave. And so when Jesus talks about the scripture having to be fulfilled, he's not talking about just the Old Testament scripture. He's actually talking about scripture in its entirety, mankind to mankind. 
And then we arrive here at Easter. Father, let this cup pass, but not if it's my will, but yours. Jesus, staring at death on a cross, opens his heart to the Father. And the cup that Jesus spoke of is a reference to the cup of God's wrath that was spoken about in the Old Testament. It symbolised God's judgement and the outpouring of his kind of righteous anger upon sin. In his book, Living the Cross-Centred Life, C.J. Mahoney says that when Jesus entered the garden, he was shuddering, his soul deeply distressed. You see, Jesus understood what was about to happen. He would be crucified and die a horrible and painful death. But Jesus also knew why he was going to die. And so in obedience to the Father, he submitted to what was about to happen. And what follows is a kind of classic example of human nature at its worst. It was a combination of Roman power and Jewish self-righteous bitterness. And it was to prove a venomous collusion between these, these two normally enemies. And the irony is that it was not the Jews that blinked. The Jews were determined to see Jesus die. It was actually the Romans who blinked, who tried to find a way to avoid it. When I was in my early teens, I played a lot of rugby. One weekend, as part of a, a kind of reward um, for being a part of a representative team, our coach and manager took us along to see a first-grade match. Now, this was kind of a big deal for us. We'd, we'd seen these guys on telly. Now, shock as this may be for some of you, tellies in those days were black and white. <laughs> wow, yeah. So there's people sitting at the back going, gee, this guy's really old. Um, yes, he is. But I'd seen them at uh, coaching clinics, and, and so these guys, you know, when, when you're about 8 or 10, 11 years old, these guys are kind of like your heroes. And so we're, we're excited. We're absolutely pumped about going along to this first grade game. Um, it, was, uh, it was pretty exciting for us because it was actually in one of the big grounds in Sydney where there is a thing called The Hill. Um, the Hill is a great opportunity to go and eat meat pies, which the, I'm not sure if it is meat, but anyway, we, we never questioned that and drink this sort of soupy Coke stuff that was made on sort of a cordial stuff. It's all pretty revolting, really, but it's great fun. Great fun. When we arrived at the ground, we were kind of ushered um, up onto the hill by the officials that had kind of organised this whole thing for us. And basically, the hill... Well, it's a hill. There's no kind of schmancy seats and handrails and grandstands and all that sort of stuff. It's, it's, just, it's just a hill. Um, and everything was going really well. The game had started, you know, we were, we were kind of right into it. It was a bit hard to see because we were all about this big and the crowd was all about this big. But we were having a pretty good time rocking along, just being a part of this whole first grade game thing. Everything went well until one of the teams scored a try. 
and the supporters of the other team decided that it was a rip-off. It's a very Australian thing to do. They started yelling all sorts of abuse and waving all sorts of things around. First, they were just waving their hats and shirts and things, and then they were waving their kids, who half of them were still in their strollers, and, and the whole place started to get crazy. I mean, like, really out of control crazy. But it wasn't until the, the fans of the team that had scored the try responded with a bunch of what can only be described as very intelligent comments about, you know, the other team's history and parentage. And I was kind of standing in the middle of, of this melee that was actually taking place. And there, there were beer bottles starting to be hurled. First beer can didn't arrive until 1958 in Australia, by the way. Bit of trivia. Um, so they'd been here, but this was the days of, of beer bottles and, like, massive eskies that you took along to the football. It was probably the reason why the rules are there now. And the whole place became like this Mexican wave of beer bottles and meat pies. And I remember thinking, this is going to get really bad really soon. By the time the cops arrived on the hill, the crowd was completely out of control. No one in the grandstands were, were watching the football game any longer. The, the hill had become the main event that everybody would now pay their money to go and see. And it was like a, a mix of kind of Russell Crowe's gladiator and married at first sight. <laughs> it, was that, it was that like everybody was just lashing out at everybody. And I remember vividly standing in the middle of this brawl and, and consciously thinking, I, I could die today. I could die right here, right now, in the middle of squashed meat pies and broken beer bottles and a bunch of people throwing punches at each other. It was like this uncontrollable, sociopathic kind of urge to punch stuff had come over everybody that was in the crowd. And they weren't thinking about what they were doing, they were just going nuts and then just went more nuts. At one stage, this incredibly overweight guy wearing nothing but a pair of blue stubbies and an esky on his head <laughs> threw himself into the fight. And I'm just thinking, uh, what does a 10 or 11-year-old kid do? To this day, I've hated being in crowds, people. That crowd mentality where one idiot feeds off another idiot and pretty soon you have people doing things that they wouldn't normally do. I, I call it the pack mentality. Jesus is about to be fed to the pack. But how do we end up in this situation where this guy, Jesus, who is a bloke who hasn't done anything wrong, ends up hanging on a cross labelled a criminal? Well, you have to go back into the Garden of Gethsemane, kind of unravel it a little bit. In Mark 14, 43 to 51, we have Jesus still in the garden where he's been praying. While this is going on, Judas, one of the 12, he's on the other side of town doing a deal with a bunch of chief priests and lawyers and, and these kind of scholars of the, the law, the Jewish law, to set Jesus up. The garden is dead quiet. It's the middle of the night. 
The disciples that were there with Jesus kept falling asleep. And the air is, is heavy and damp and cool. But off in the distance, Jesus can hear this crowd of people coming up the road. And then they enter the garden. And when they do, it's pretty clear that they're armed and they're looking for problems. And Judas steps out of this crowd. And as he had agreed with the priests and the elders, he approached Jesus and greets him. Knowing this is the bloke now that thereafter, they seize Jesus. The disciples fight back. Jesus kind of pulls them off and stops them. And then he says to the crowd, this is what has to happen so that the scriptures can be fulfilled. And remember when Jesus is speaking, he's talking about mankind to mankind scripture. Not just Old Testament, but mankind to mankind scripture. They drag him into town and they put him before the high priest and the elders and the teachers of the law. And a whole bunch of people start telling all these different stories about what Jesus is supposed to have done and said. And in the end, there are so many conflicting stories. Scripture records that that so many people were so keen to get up and and make these accusations against Jesus. None of them agreed, but it didn't matter. Eventually, the bloke that's supposed to sort this mess out gives up. He hands Jesus back to the Jews and he says, listen, if you're determined to kill him, then I guess that's what's going to happen. Go away, do it. But the whole time that this is going on, Jesus didn't say a word. Not until the high priest loses the plot completely, complete frustration, and he demands Jesus answer one question. Are you the Messiah? And Jesus, having not said a word, whilst all the accusations and lies were flying around, turns to the high priest and he says, Yes, I am. The crowd go nuts. It was like the beer bottle started flying and the esky lids are belting into people. The whole thing just went completely out of control. They blindfolded him and they beat him. They spat on him. And Peter has been there watching the whole time. The Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, was over by the fire in the corner of the temple courtyard, watching it all unfold. And when a servant girl confronts him and says, Dude, you're one of them. You're one of those Christians, aren't you? Peter says, No. No, I, I don't know what you're talking about. In fact, verse 68 to 71 records Peter saying, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know this man. Gripped by fear, Peter denies his Lord. The next day, Jesus is dragged off to face Pilate. Pilate can't find any reason to harm Jesus. And he says to the Jews, who were by now thoroughly whipped up into a storm, I can let him go because he hasn't done anything wrong. But the crowd demand that Jesus be crucified. And so Pilate, fearing the crowd, 
offers them the chance to free either Jesus or a local criminal called Barabbas. But the crowd are focused on Jesus. And so Barabbas is released. Jesus is flogged and mocked and made to carry a wooden cross through the streets to a hill called Golgotha. And there they nail him up and they kill him. And in verse 37 of Mark 15 we read, And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The crowd had got what they wanted. Did they actually know what they were doing and did it anyway? Was it a a conscious, deliberate thing that they set out to do and just saw it through, knowing it was wrong? Or were they just carried away with all the yelling and screaming and the accusations and the lies about what Jesus had done and not done and said and not said? So carried away that they never actually took the time to stop and think about what they were about to do. Let me ask you a question. What would you have done that day? Would you have done what Peter did and denied Jesus, denied even knowing him? No way. No way. I am not a Christian. I don't even know what you're talking about. Jesus told Peter he would do that three times. And it was true. Three times. Peter, someone who had been chosen by Jesus, who had walked alongside of Jesus, who had seen Jesus perform these miracles... still denied him. And the saddest part of Peter's denial is that any one of us could have been that face in that crowd. Oh, we may not be standing there yelling, crucify him, crucify him. But every time we listen to someone ripping on God and saying nothing, aren't we doing the same thing? I may not be yelling, crucify him, but every time I get frustrated in my life and get impatient and let my temper kind of gurgle to the forefront, I am one of those faces in the crowd who refuse to take Jesus seriously and to let him have complete control of my life. I might not be standing on a dirt floor in a temple courtyard when we do it, But every time we judge someone else for their sin whilst ignoring our own, we are just another face in that crowd. We may not be yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Because the thing that drew that crowd together was not Judas or a high priest and lawyers deciding they were going to get it all together. It wasn't even Judas's kiss. It was their sinful hearts. And just as we are bound together by the freedom that we know through Jesus' death on that cross, we cannot forget that we are also bound together by our sinful hearts. No, the real question is not, could we have been one of the faces in that crowd? The real question we need to answer is why would Jesus die on that cross for us? knowing that we could have been one of the faces in that crowd. 
The answer to that question is found in John 3:16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. Yes, we're sinful. And just as capable of denying Jesus if the situation is right. But God does not condemn us for that. He loves us through that. Despite his regular failings, Peter went on to play a significant role in establishing the modern church. And the Apostle Paul, despite having persecuted and condemned Christians in his previous life, went on to write the better part of the New Testament. Sinful men, redeemed by God, sharing in the resurrection of Christ. Do you honestly think that your failings are a surprise to God? I don't care how badly you think you may have let God down. Our failings will be covered over by the blood of Jesus if we will but confess them and let him be Lord of our lives. I don't care if you think that you have failed God and sinned against people in ways that that no one else in this room could ever imagine. Because I'm sure that Peter left the temple court that night believing that Jesus would want nothing to do with him ever again. And yet Jesus restored Peter and blessed him because he loved him. Every one of us has something to seek forgiveness for. And Jesus died on that cross for every one of us knowing that. There's no one in this room this morning that's done something so surprisingly bad in God's eyes that Jesus' blood cannot cover it. You are not too sinful for God. God's love and grace can overcome whatever it is that you or I have done. No, the question is not, will God turn his back on us? The real question is, in what ways are we turning our back on God? We are quicker to give up than God has ever quicker to give up on us and Father we pray that as we come now to celebrate the communion service that Lord each one of us knowing that there are things in our life that offend you and hurt you that each one of us will just assuredly know that those things are covered over with the blood of Jesus. That, Father, Easter is not the end of your plan. That we are the purpose of your plan. That from the moment you created us, from the moment you breathed life into us, You knew that we would fail you and yet your love was so strong 
that you turned us loose into the world anyway. Father, we pray that each one of us will be constantly reminded of the power of your love, the power of the resurrection of Jesus from the grave, that you have conquered sin and death and that the absolute certainty in life is that the victory has already been won, that we should not go through life consumed with fear or guilt, but that we should go through life walking in the freedom that is ours, won on the cross of Calvary by Jesus our Lord. And we pray, Father, that each and every day we will walk in that freedom. And we pray this in your precious name. Amen.